A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Guess what, Mango? What's that, Will? I'm not sure if you saw this, but earlier this year, the Chinese province of Qinghai successfully powered itself for a full week on 100% renewable energy. I'm not sure I heard that. So I'd, I'd read about this just a little bit, but I didn't remember the scale of it. So they were using solar and wind and hydropower, and they managed to provide power to 5.6 million residents for seven full days. I mean, that's more than the population of Los Angeles. It's more than Chicago. It's more than Phoenix and Philadelphia and San Antonio combined. It's more than San Diego, Dallas, (laughs) Seattle, and Austin combined. It's even more than... I think we got the idea. It's a lot of people. Yeah, good, because I I think I was about to run out of my cities there. But, uh, (laughs) you know, but all of this is even more interesting when you consider the images of big cities in China covered in smog. So it got me wondering just how serious China is about moving toward renewable energy. And there's a bigger question here. You know, are they actually positioned to become the green superpower of the future? So that's what we're talking about today. Let's get started. Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend Mangesh Hatikader. And on the other side of the soundproof glass, I think calculating his carbon footprint <laughs> is our friend and producer, Tristan McNeil. So, Mango, we're talking about China today and, and specifically asking the question, will they become the world's renewable energy superpower? Yeah, and it feels a little strange to be asking that question, given the reputation China has with its environmental standards. So if you've ever been to any big city there or even seen photos, China has had this major air quality problem for decades now. And if you remember back before the 2008 Olympics, I feel like there were so many stories about the Chinese government and how they were like frantically trying to plant flowers and trees and trying to pretty everything up. It was almost like they had this messy house and they were rushing to clean before the entire world was dropping in for a visit. Well, I've actually never been, but I feel like anyone I know who's gone just for work or to visit briefly, they've returned talking about that air quality in the big cities. Well, I actually visited once when I was in eighth grade, and I do remember it being dusty, but the biggest impression China made on me was that we were in a McDonald's, and it was so fancy. (laughs) 
In fact, after we ordered, we got kicked out because they were having a wedding there. No way. <laughs> yeah, so that's the first thing I remember. And, and that all the hotels used to give you slippers because it wasn't uncommon for businessmen to just spit on the floors, even in the rooms. And these were nice hotels. Maybe we should change the topic of today's uh, episode. We'll just talk about <laughs> McDonald's and hotels. And but, things uh, I remember. That's right. That's right. <laughs> things Mango remembers about China. But I know you did say it was pretty polluted, too. And, mm-hmm. it, you know, it's been surprising when you see reporters talking about China leading this green revolution. So so I do want to talk about that today. We'll talk about McDonald's another time. <laughs> so I, I know, like when you mentioned this green revolution thing to me, I was so confused. I, I'd read this 2014 New Yorker piece about this artist, uh, Kai Gu Cheng. I, I, I'm sure I'm butchering his name, but it, it was all about how he walks this fine line of commenting on environmental issues, but doesn't expressly say it because of the government. And his pieces are totally crazy. Like he had this giant rusted out ship that had all these pairs of sick animals on them, like these wan looking zebras and gazelles and wolves and whatever on this bizarro Noah's Ark. And he floated it down this big waterway in Shanghai and docked it at this major art museum. He also made this super beautiful lake at the museum. It's this piece called Silent Ink. And he excavated down into the concrete floors. I'm not sure how he got permission, but then he filled the space with this old calligraphy ink, which just feels traditional and poetic. But when you're looking at this lake in a room that's basically all black, you get the pollution reference. Right, right. And also there was this industrial chimney in the space, and he put three baby dolls on a swing there, and he called it Air of Heaven. (laughs) I mean, none of this is very subtle. Wow. And I actually, I'm curious, like, how did this guy not get arrested? Yeah, I have no idea. I mean, this is a clear critique of the environment and China's handling of it. But he was also the art and lighting director for the Beijing Olympics. So he's really respected. And now he lives in New Jersey. Anyway, well, want to give us a really quick overview of the state of the environment in China and, and what they've done in the past couple of decades, you know, just to set the stage for what they've been up to recently. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to do that. I think it might give us some perspective to highlight a couple numbers first. Let me let me look at these. So there are estimates that 750,000 people or more die prematurely each year because of air and water pollution in China. And some of those estimates say by as much as five or six years. So it's significant. Yeah, in prepping for today's show, I saw that only about 1% of the country's city residents are breathing clean air on a daily basis. Yeah, it's really staggering. And that industrial air pollution is what led to cancer becoming the leading cause of death in China. And they've dealt for years now with major issues around soil contamination, contaminated waterways, and lead poisoning. But, you know, we'll mostly be focusing on air quality and, to a lesser extent, water quality. And one other number or index that helps put things in perspective is the air quality index. And the U.S. Embassy in Beijing began posting that each day. And and this has been going on for several years now. So I've actually seen the air quality index before. But can you remind me what the numbers mean? Sure. And so on the index, you've got this rating of 101 to 150, which would indicate slight pollution. Then 151 to 200 means moderate pollution. Then you've got a range that means heavy pollution all the way up to 300. And then above that, from 301 to 500, this means hazardous levels of pollution. So it's probably in your best interest to steer clear of a rating in that range. And I'm guessing Beijing's is not that good. Well, it was interesting to see the way the U.S. described it in their post on the first day Beijing score crossed the 500 mark. But that was the first time they actually went above 500. Again, this is well above the hazardous range. This was in November of 2010, and the way they described it was just 
crazy bad. (laughs) And then they decided to change it to beyond index. I mean, that's pretty bad when you're going beyond the index, especially when the top 200 points on that index already represent hazardous. Well, and they didn't stop there. I mean, there were readings in 2013 that were as high as 800. It's a perfect SAT. It is, but not good in this case. And, you know, obviously at this point, the government had to take it more seriously or at least pay lip service to taking it more seriously. So they developed this action plan, which would work to reduce pollution over a several year period and invest in renewables. So that's when China began investing in renewables? Well, actually, the investments began growing substantially well before this. And that growth really began in 2004, 2005. And and just to illustrate this growth. So in 2004, China invested about $3 billion on renewable energy. And maybe that sounds like a, a big figure, but that number grew every year after that until 2015 when it reached 103 billion. So again, that's 3 billion to 103 billion. Wow. I mean, that's a massive leap. So let's talk about China's current usage before we break down their plans for the future. All right. Well, let's start with the fact that not surprisingly, China uses more energy than any other country. And I think we would expect that given Mm -hmm. their population. And in 2015, China consumed a little over 20 percent of what's known as the world's final total consumption of fuel. So this would be the combination of oil, natural gas, coal, electricity, biofuels and any other sources. Yeah. So this was crazy to me. I I was actually looking at a list of the largest energy users in the world. And apparently on a per capita basis, China isn't the biggest offender, or even in the top 10 for that matter. It's Iceland. Oh, wow. I mean, that's all misleading because it's a calculation of all sources of energy. So Iceland's primarily uh, renewables-based energy gets counted into this. And also having a small population throws off the statistic, too. But what's weird is that the U.S. also comes in ahead of China on a per capita energy usage basis. Okay, so so let's get back to China. How does their energy usage break down? I don't know if I'm ready to get back to China. I still <laughs> want to talk about Iceland. Why are they using so much energy? So, I know. I know it's renewables. We we won't get into that. So, all right, well, coal is still king in China. And, and while it's been declining in terms of the percentage of the country's energy production, it still accounts for a little over 60% of this production. And that's down maybe 7 or 8% over the past few years. But, you know, to say coal is big in China is a huge understatement. I think China produced something like 45% of the world's coal in 2016. But in addition to that, it's also the largest importer of coal. So this is just a tremendous amount of coal there. And I know the government's been shutting down some coal mines and have talked about restrictions on building new plants. But much like we've heard discussed in the U.S., there are a ton of people employed by the coal industry. I, I think I saw this New York Times figure that had it at about 4 million coal miners. Yeah, so it's it's a ton of jobs. And, and actually, let's keep that number in mind when we talk about the economic opportunity on the renewables front, just to see how it compares. But, you know, if you've ever seen any stories or films about the lives of coal miners and several of the rural mines in China, it's an incredibly dangerous job. And we hear about the dangerous conditions for miners here in the States, but mm-hmm. the number of deaths each year in Chinese mines are just staggering. And this is despite the regulations from the Chinese government, because You know, when there are 17,000 mines in a country, it's really difficult to actually crack down on the illegally operated mines. These have inadequate ventilation, poorly supported tunnels, but that could definitely be its own episode. And I know we're going to focus on the the impact of the industry as a whole. But actually, you were telling me earlier about a statistic on CO2 emissions there. Yeah, let me just find this because I, I want to get the numbers right. But one report I was looking at noted that in 2015, China produced just shy of 30 percent of the world's total CO2 emissions from fuel combustion. And that actually makes it the world's biggest polluter. 
However, they, they keep coming back to this per capita defense, which shows they're not at the top of the list when measured per capita. I, I mean, I, I remember hearing about uh, this way back in the early aughts that there were all these developing countries that thought it was unfair that the U.S. was imposing these environmental restrictions on them, especially at a time when they were having their industrial booms, because, of course, countries in the West grew without real concern for polluting in their own industrial revolutions and then tapered back once they were like these bustling economies. Yeah. But I, I mean, it's it's really interesting to note that back in 1973, China produced less than 6% of the world's CO2 emissions, and now it's 30%. So it's been this massive increase, and especially since the early 2000s when emissions really skyrocketed. So 6% to 30%. Yeah, that is that is huge. All right, so 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 coal is the biggie here. Well, I actually, what, what about oil? I mean, I know you were looking into their oil usage, and mm-hmm. are they also the biggest user there, too? And I know I've seen several stories about how much the auto industry has been growing in China. Yeah, so car sales have grown tremendously, with 24 million more people getting cars in 2015. And here's what's crazy. So the economists noted that China is at about 120 vehicles per 1,000 people, which is around the level of America in the 1920s. So if you think about that figure, it's inevitable that's going to grow significantly. And and with that, the demand for oil is definitely going to increase as well. But despite that, they still haven't cracked the top 10 in oil usage. Still, I mean, oil provided about 20 percent of China's energy in 2015. All right. Well, let's briefly talk about natural gas and nuclear. And, and neither of them are currently a significant percentage of China's energy usage. And, and then we'll talk about China's role in the Green Revolution. Definitely. So China actually produces less energy from natural gas than it does from renewable sources. But we should note that the U.S. is both the largest producer and the largest user of natural gas in the world. Okay, so what about nuclear? I mean, the the U.S. is the biggest producer there, too, right? Definitely. So the U.S. is the biggest producer by a pretty wide margin. It's nearly twice as much the next biggest, and that would be France. But it is interesting when you look at France, like how they use it. They produce a whopping 78% of its electricity from nuclear power. Wow. Yeah, and China produces about 3% of its power from nuclear, but China appears to be investing more than pretty much everyone else in the space. So just last year, they brought on five new reactors, which is the most they've ever brought on in a year, and there are almost a couple dozen more being built right now. In fact, China accounted for pretty much all of the global nuclear power increase in 2016. That's huge. All right. Well, well, I know we're going to take a break for a quiz in a minute, but before we do, I, I feel like I could actually hear some of our listeners screaming at their phones or speakers <laughs> and saying, you know, why did you put nuclear in the non-renewable sources of energy? Because nuclear would be very good for air quality. And I, I feel like we need to address that really quickly. Yeah. So there's this ongoing debate of where to classify nuclear energy. And part of the debate just has to do with how exactly you define renewable energy. Yeah, that's right. And technically, renewable energy is a form that's capable of regenerating or replenishing itself indefinitely. So we're typically talking hydro, solar, wind, geothermal, biomass. But, you know, nuclear energy, on the other hand, generally requires uranium for the fission process. And and that's where the heat is generated. Then the nuclear plants convert this heat into the electricity using steam. So according to that definition, uranium is this finite resource. Yeah, but those in support of classifying it as a renewable resource, they point out that one of the main points of focusing on renewable resources is to create cleaner power and that nuclear power provides this low carbon emission option. So they argue the focus shouldn't be on whether the resource is technically finite so much as whether it reduces carbon emissions. 
But many opponents are actually not pointing to its status as a finite resource as their main objection. I mean, many of them feel that the harmful nuclear waste that's produced in the process of creating nuclear energy, that's what's problematic and allowing it to be classified as renewable. Hmm. But either way, it's definitely a much cleaner source than coal when it comes to carbon emissions. And this is something China appears to be taking pretty seriously. Well, now that we've got that out of our system, why don't we take a quick break for a quiz? A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, And then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true, and I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things, and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
So I want to be honest about something. So our guest today um, certainly has many international connections, and that might have been part of the excuse for bringing on the show today. But I actually want to admit that the real reason that she's on is she's the first person who's written in with the fun fact that her older brother is a competitive curler in the state of North Dakota. Have you have you ever met anyone who's a curler in the state of North Dakota, Mango? No, I haven't. So that's 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 a big bonus here. But Jordan Perry, <laughs> welcome to Part Time Genius. Thanks for having me, guys. So Jordan, where are you joining us from today? I am in Denver, Colorado. Wonderful. I love Denver. Well, well, tell us a little bit about what you do there. Um, so I'm in Denver because I'm studying to get my master's degree in global finance. Um, so we do study a lot about trade and and specifically China, for sure. Um, But I'm also working full-time remotely right now um, as an academic director for an intercultural institute that has locations all over the world. Um, So I work in terms of managing teachers and supporting academic departments at um, several institutes that have academic programs for uh, locals, and we, we work in a lot of areas that have, like, development needs so that we can receive international students who want to study abroad and also do some volunteering abroad as well. I think that's super cool. Oh, that's wonderful. I, I do have to ask, though, when you shared the fact about your brother being a competitive curler, is that true, or were you really just using that to try to get on the show? <laughs> <laughs> it is true. He's my younger brother, actually, um, and so he is a junior at North Dakota State University, and he decided to go there because he'd be able to continue curling. Um, And we're actually hoping for Beijing 2022 for the Winter Olympics for him and and his teammates. So our fingers are crossed. That's amazing. I I actually saw on TV last night, I I think the uh, U.S. curling team was playing the Scottish curling team, which is, is just amazing that that's a televised event. But uh, I, I also really love that uh, you come from this family of athletes, right? Your dad was in the Junior Olympics as a skier, but but you've read mm-hmm. Harry Potter every book at least two dozen times. Is that true? <laughs> that is true. <laughs> uh, I'm not as huge a fan of the movies. I have seen them all multiple times. Um, but I grew up with Harry Potter. I got the first and second books right after they came out. And so in the anticipation every year of waiting for the next book to come out, I would reread them all over and over again. I'd say the first three or four, I've read even more than that. And then the last few, like I, I do an annual reread of the whole series. And, and yeah, I'm obsessed. That's wonderful. A, a true athlete, just like the rest of the family. That's uh, That's amazing. All right. Well, as you know, today's episode is asking the question about whether China will become a green superpower. And so we're focused on several alternative energies in this uh, in this episode. But Mango, what, what quiz are we putting Jordan to the test with today? It's called the Alternative Alternative Energy Quiz. All right, the Alternative Alternative Energy Quiz. We've got five true or false questions for you. Are you ready, Jordan? I guess. <laughs> okay, here we go. Question number one. In Rotterdam, there's a sustainable dance club called Club Watt, where the electricity for the lights and speakers is generated by footsteps from ravers' feet. Is this true or false? That has to be true. Yeah, it is. And the club also features a (laughs) tap water bar and toilets that are flushed with rainwater. Wow. All right. She's one for one. Question number two. In 2011, two artists designed a line of carnivorous furniture based on Venus flytraps. Their digital clock catches insects and can be powered for 12 days on eight dead flies. Is this true or false? That is so ridiculous. 
I, I could imagine Mango writing that back, but I'm going to say false. Oh, it, <laughs> it's actually true. They also have a lamp powered on insects and a table that feeds on mice and has lights on under it. It's crazy. I have to be honest with you, Jordan. I, I fell for that one as well. As soon as I read that, I was like, oh, that's a total Mango lie. That is, uh, <laughs> that's too good to be true. All right. One, one out of two. The question number three. The Army has developed a line of radios and phones that run on sugar cubes instead of batteries. Using Splenda, however, will jam up the circuits. True or false? I'm going to go with false on that. Yeah, you're right. All right. Question number four. Iceland runs a deep drilling project that's been drilling three miles into the ground to harness energy from super hot magma. True or false? Um, I don't know. Iceland is a pretty... I think of Iceland as a pretty sustainable place, and lots of drilling doesn't really line up, but that does sound like something that could be possible, so true? Yeah, you're right. I mean, Iceland uses a number of these geothermal wells, but this one should actually be able to supply 50,000 homes with natural energy. All right. That's awesome. So, Jordan, you're three out of four so far. The last one for the big prize. Here we go. Question number five. In Australia, dairy farmers have been tying special plastic bags to cows' backsides to capture their gas, or rather their methane gas. They then sell the energy back to the state. Is this true or false? I'm going to go with false. Yeah, you're right. I mean, there are a few scientists working on extracting methane from cow patties, but uh, actually bagging your cow from the behind is, isn't actually a practice. <laughs> Let's not use that phrase anymore. I think maybe we should avoid that one. But uh, <laughs> All right, question. So she... Uh, so Jordan has gotten four out of five. Is that right, Mango? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, that entitles her to our big prize, which today is we'll be Pony Expressing her an official part-time genius certificate of genius, which you can put on her fridge or frame for her mother. And we'll also send her a box of nerd candies, which is the official candy of part-time genius. Wow. Well, congratulations, Jordan. Best of luck to you and your job, and best of luck to your brother and his uh, efforts to uh, to go to Beijing in the next Olympics. But thank you so much for joining us today on Part-Time Genius. My pleasure, guys. Thank you. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. 
And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Part-Time Genius. So before the break, we were looking at the breakdown of China's primary sources of energy. We had coal, oil, nuclear, and to a lesser extent, natural gas. So let's talk about the investment in renewable energies and and this idea that China could become the big superpower because of their investment in green technologies. Yeah, so as we talked about earlier in the show, China has ramped up its investment in renewable energy significantly since 2004. They've gone from a total of $3 billion in 2004 to $103 billion in 2015. And now in 2016, that number did fall to a little below $90 billion, as it did in many locations across the globe. And that's partly because of these populist movements that have been taking hold across the globe. So that's like the ones experienced in the UK with the Independence Party and here in the US with Donald Trump. But even at this level, we're still talking 30 times more than what was spent in 2004. Yeah, it's a huge increase. And the Chinese government officials announced in January that the country plans to spend over $360 billion on renewable energy through 2020. And they've stated goals of having 15 percent of energy consumption being from renewable sources by 2020 and then 30 percent by 2030. Which is crazy, but this is the part I'm excited to talk about, and that's why China is making these changes. And that is, what what are their motivations? Because there's more involved than just making a cleaner environment. Yeah, it's true, you know, but the public outcry over deadly urban air pollution has accelerated this push for clean energy. NPR recently had this story on how China's middle class has really been pushing for change, and that the state-run paper had a story on three mothers and how they were dealing with pollution. One of them kept her kids inside, barricaded with multiple air purifiers running. One moved away from the city entirely just for her children's health. I mean, the story was heavily circulated. That is, of course, before the government censored it. There was also this 2015 documentary called Under the Dome, 
It was watched 200 million times and praised by the environmental minister before that also got pulled by the government. And the government is clearly aware of the problem, but it's also very clear that it doesn't want to be criticized for it either. Well, it's hard to ignore, though. I mean, National Geographic estimated that more than one million people die each year due to air pollution. So that urban middle class is making noise for a reason. Yeah, but like you were hinting at, you know, the other compelling reason is the economic impact. As Anton Liu, who's a professor at Indiana University's School of Public and Environmental Affairs, told National Geographic, quote, it's not just pollution that's driving the determined focus on renewable power. Leaders have made clear that they view clean energy as a powerful engine for job creation. It's about setting up for manufacturing dominance. China sees green energy as an opportunity where it can become a manufacturing monster the way it has in clothes and toys. <laughs> a monster. So I know I'm just stringing quotes here, which is something my journalism teacher from high school, Mrs. Rowe, asked me never to do. But there's another good quote from the Financial Times Deputy Beijing Bureau Chief, and her name's Lucy Hornsby. And this is what she says, quote, The Chinese point of view is that, okay, everyone's worried about climate change. The Western countries are about to plow a whole lot of money into trying to stop it happening. We can supply the manufactured goods. We can supply the wind turbines. We can supply the solar panels. So the whole Paris climate change action is viewed as a massive export opportunity for China, Inc. So, I mean, you can see there this investment is definitely creating jobs. And if you remember that 4 million coal miners that we were talking about. Yep. Well, China already claims to have 3.5 million jobs in the clean energy space, which is far more than any other country. And the goal is to create 10 million jobs in clean energy. And that's part of this move to have 15 percent of energy coming from clean energy sources by 2020. Wow, 10 million. That is huge. Well, I think many would see this as the real motivator for China's investment. And we'll talk in a few minutes about why there's some real skepticism over their desire to actually battle global warming. But let's get back to where China stands in their investments in renewable energy. So which one of these do you want to talk about first? Well, I think we should talk about hydropower just because I like saying the word hydro. I know you like saying hydro. <laughs> so uh, China produces more hydroelectricity than any other country on Earth. And it's not even close. Like Canada comes in second and they only produce about one third of what China does. And if you want to illustrate what their investment has done, in 1973, China produced about 3% of the world's hydroelectric power. And in 2015, it was nearly 30%. About a fifth of their electricity comes from hydropower. That's impressive. Well, we, we should pause for a second, though, to note the country that gets the greatest percentage of its power from hydroelectricity. I was looking this up, and it's actually Norway. <laughs> so they get about 96 to 97% of their power from hydro. Isn't that incredible? That is. I feel like we should send them a certificate of some kind. Let, let, let's work on that. <laughs> Definitely. So check your mail, Norway, sometime in the future. Anyway, <laughs> l l let's talk about another one where China has grown its global share tenfold over the past decade, and that's wind power. So j just a second, I I'm going to pull up these stats. So they went from producing about 2% of the world's wind power in 2005 to 22% in 2015. And the U.S. currently produces a slightly larger percentage at 23%. But given the level of investment, you have to imagine China is going to be passing the U.S. before too long. Well, when you look at these numbers, I don't think there's any question about that. And, and here are some recent numbers I saw from earlier this year. China produces almost half of the world's wind turbines. Goldwind, which is a Chinese company, is now the largest wind turbine manufacturer in the world. And five of the top 10 wind turbine manufacturers of the world are in China. I mean, that's just huge. Mm -hmm. And according to The New York Times, one out of every three turbines in the world is also located in China. So, you know, while the U.S. may have produced slightly more power in recent years from wind, 
with all the new wind turbines in China, there's something like 92,000 of them. <laughs> I mean, they have the capacity to generate almost twice as much wind power as the U.S. So while only 3% of China's power is currently coming from wind, uh, that, that number doesn't fully reflect the impact they're having on the industry and how that sector is positioned for significant growth there. Yeah, and one of the issues they're currently dealing with now is how much of their wind power is being wasted or curtailed, as they might say. So what's that mean exactly? Well, curtailment is something that you hear about when wind turbines or solar panels stop producing. And this is happening even though they could produce more. And as a result, you lose that surplus energy. And this often happens if a power grid is overwhelmed and not really appropriately equipped to handle all the energy coming into it. Look at the numbers in 2016, nearly 20% of wind energy was lost because of curtailment. So that's something the government's really trying to tackle, and they have a plan to get that down to about 5% by 2020. Okay, so before we move on, we, we forgot to name the country that gets the greatest percentage of its power from wind, and that title belongs to Spain at about 18%. So great job, Spain. Good job, Spain. Yeah, you, you might also get a certificate. You will get a certificate. Oh, wow. Stepping yeah. up. Okay. <laughs> All right, so we just mentioned solar. So why don't we talk about that one next? And this is another one where even though they're at about 1% of their electricity generated coming from solar, they're still playing a huge role in the future of this industry. Again, just look at the numbers. So China is now producing two-thirds of the world's solar panels. And in a five-year period, they've increased their solar power production tenfold. In 2015, they produced 18% of the world's solar electricity. And I saw one quote from the New York Times earlier this year, and that said, quote, Greenpeace estimates that uh, China covered the equivalent of one soccer field every hour with solar panels. Wow. And I know you're a big soccer fan, so I'm sure that quote really <laughs> hit home with you. Yeah, but just look at what their investment has done in this industry. So six of the top 10 solar panel manufacturers are Chinese companies, and two-thirds of the world's solar panels come from China. I mean, they're the ones responsible for the huge decline in prices. And some estimates have solar panel pricing falling by as much as 90 percent over the past 10 years or so. So when you think about it from an environmental perspective, this investment has been a good thing. But mm -hmm. again, it's largely driven by economics. And China wants to own this space. And now there are more than two and a half million people employed by the solar power industry there. That's about 10 times as many people employed by that industry in the U.S., and China's now home to the largest solar farm on Earth. And here's how Tom Phillips, he's a reporter for The Guardian, described it. Quote, High on the Tibetan Plateau, a sea of nearly four million deep blue panels flows towards a spectacular horizon of snow-capped mountains. Mile after mile of silicon cells tilting skywards from what was once a barren, windswept cattle ranch. The remote 27-square-kilometer solar farm tops an ever-expanding roll call of supersized symbols that underline China's determination to transform itself from climate villain to green superpower. And that's a cool description, but actually, just as a side note, did you hear about the huge solar panel farm that's actually shaped like a giant panda bear? <laughs> I mean, I did see that, but I, I was curious, what, was it actually real? Yeah, this was pretty widely reported on it. And when I saw the image at first, I, I wondered the same thing. And, and so I turned to the always fascinating Snopes just to check this out. And it, it turns out the solar panel farm itself is real, but the image that was all over the place, you might have seen on various websites, that mm -hmm. was just an artist's rendering and it's not an actual photo. Oh. But the farm is apparently 250 acres, and there are plans to build 100 more of these panda-shaped solar farms across China <laughs> and 
other countries in Asia. It kind of makes you want to just travel by plane across the country when all of these are there just to see them. It, it And it's totally worth Googling just to see the image, even if it's not an actual photo. Yeah. I mean, it's fascinating to see how Chinese companies are improving their solar technology each year. And they're figuring out how to build these panels cheaper and cheaper, but still maintaining this incredible level of quality. And they're not just selling to the U.S. anymore. I mean, we're, we're talking countries like Saudi Arabia and India. Whether they need to provide panels for extremely dry climates or incredibly humid ones, they're finding ways to produce them. Well, and this has all happened because of this huge government push to get really low interest rate loans to solar panel manufacturers. And I want to say it was something like $18 billion in loans the government got state-owned banks to give to these companies. And this was just over a six- or seven-year period. So the focus on investing in these kinds of businesses and becoming a leader in them is is also connected to China's Belt and Road Initiative. And this is the massive infrastructure investment China's leading across the historic Silk Road, and that connects Asia to Europe. They've got nearly 70 countries to join in this effort in, in some way, and the plan is for China to invest about – I think it's like $150 billion each year in infrastructure. Wow. So we're talking bridges, roads, railways, power plants, pipelines, things like that. And, you know, this is definitely a very different China than we were used to seeing, you know, just a couple of decades ago. Well, I mean, that brings us back to the comment earlier about China's real motivation in this massive investment in green technologies. Yeah, well, the huge outcry from the urban middle class definitely had an impact. You know, as, as, as Beth Gardner noted in a piece she wrote for National Geographic, quote, the results are sometimes more cosmetic than real. Leaders order temporary factory closures to clear the air ahead of some, you know, these high profile events like international huh. summits. They close factories for weeks in November, and December, just so the city won't exceed its annual pollution limit. That's crazy. But what seems even more alarming to me is that while coal plant construction is being limited within Chinese borders, Chinese companies are actually building coal plants abroad. And when you look at the new coal projects going online over, over the next decade or so, Chinese companies are responsible for about half of them. And countries like India, Vietnam, Mongolia, Iran, Indonesia, some of these are in countries that haven't historically used coal as an energy source. And they're looking to expand in places like Pakistan and Egypt, which aren't currently really coal-burning countries. So while we might be celebrating the significant investment in green technologies in China itself, like these new plants in the works would increase the world's capacity to burn coal by over 40 percent. Well, and I was looking at a figure the other day. So two of the big global banks in China have financed more than 40 billion dollars in overseas coal projects over the past couple of decades. Wow. I think it's pretty clear that China may be trying to some extent to clean up their own smog and pollution problem. But I'm not sure how much they care about the real global situation. Yeah, but I still feel like there are a couple of reasons to be optimistic. So first, as we talked about earlier, China's massive investment has caused the prices of renewable technologies to drop significantly across the globe, and they'll likely continue to get cheaper. There's a Chinese company currently constructing a solar farm in the UAE, and it's going to produce electricity for much less than it costs U.S. companies to produce both solar and coal power. Well, and I also saw it's much faster to build a solar or wind farm than it is to get a coal-fired plant up and running. I mean, we're we're talking a huge difference. It's something like six months versus about 10 years. I had no idea it took that long. So another thing is that China is certainly not alone in implementing new policies to restrict coal production. So take India, for example. They're trying to get over half their energy from renewable sources by 2027. And that's just incredible. You have to think that worldwide momentum is just going to continue. Yeah, and it, it, that is incredible. It's, it's also encouraging. Yeah, so there's one more big reason to be optimistic, and that's the fact that investors are much more likely to get behind clean energy projects these days. 
The the World Bank doesn't provide financing to overseas coal projects, and that's, you know, aside from the rare exception because of extreme circumstances. And many Chinese banks are falling in line with this practice. So a lot of analysts think we're just seeing the beginning of this tremendous acceleration of renewable adoption around the world. Well, those those definitely seem like reasons to be optimistic, and but but I do feel like there's maybe one more reason to be optimistic. Is it fact off time? You bet it is. <laughs> All right, well, I'll kick us off here. So have you heard about America's first completely solar-powered community? Uh-uh. It's this 17,000-acre town in South Florida, and it's called Babcock Ranch. It's expected to begin accepting residents before the end of the year. Now, the project's taken about a decade or so to get together, but it's coming soon. And when you're there, you'll be able to get around by self-driving shuttles, and that's pretty interesting to read about. But you better hurry because the town's capacity is only 50,000. <laughs> so I've got a solar power fact, too. We, we talked about the panda-shaped solar panel farm, but there's a 100-square-mile floating solar farm in the Anhui province. Flo- you mean like in the air floating? <laughs> no, I mean it's in water. They're wave-proof solar panels, and, and they're floating on a lake that formed, oddly enough, after the collapse of a network of coal mines. It's the world's largest floating solar project, and it generates enough power to provide electricity to a significant portion of a city nearby. I mean, the government plans to expand the system to about a dozen other locations, which would then generate the power equivalent of a commercial nuclear reactor. Did you know that part of the reason people are speaking up in China about the environment is because of religion? According to The New York Times, hundreds of millions of people in China have turned to Taoism, Buddhism, Christianity and Islam recently. And apparently as concepts like karma and sin have come to the forefront, the public's paid more attention to their impact on the environment and the world. People have also used their religions as a reason to speak up. That's really fascinating. So in 2010, the Wall Street Journal reported on a scientist at Berkeley who determined how to trace pollutants back to areas of origin. And this is what she found. Apparently, 29% of the pollution in the East Bay traced back to China. I mean, the article ended on this smart point, though. Quote, the question now is how much of that 29% can be attributed to San Francisco's penchant for China-made iPhones and iPads? All right. So we talked earlier about the significant growth of the auto market in China. And China is also the leader in electric vehicle sales, with nearly half of all electric vehicles sold in 2016 being in China. Well, I I know that's impressive, but I I think I've got an even more staggering figure, and that's that there are now 200 million electric bikes in China, which is way more than the 650,000 electric cars and 350,000 electric buses there. I mean, they're a great option for those who can't afford cars but are looking for an easier way to commute. Plus, they're emission-free. 200 million of these things? Mm -hmm. All right. Well, I have to admit it, Maggie. You've (laughs) definitely one-upped me here. So I'm going to give you the fact-off trophy today. Congratulations. Excellent. And I'm never giving it back. All right. All right. Hey, guys, thanks so much for listening. Don't forget, we love hearing from you. Call us anytime on our 24-7 Fact Hotline. That's 1-844-PT-GENIUS. Or email us at parttimegenius at howstuffworks.com. A big thanks to Jocelyn Sears for her excellent research on this episode. See you next time. Thanks again for listening. Part-Time Genius is a production of How Stuff Works and wouldn't be possible without several brilliant people who do the important things we couldn't even begin to understand. Tristan McNeil does the editing thing. Noel Brown made the theme song and does the mixy-mixy sound thing. <laughs> Jerry Rowland does the exec producer thing. 
Gabe Luzier is our lead researcher with support from the research army, including Austin Thompson, Nolan Brown, and Lucas Adams. And Eves Jeffcoat gets the show to your ears. Good job, Eves. If you like what you heard, we hope you'll subscribe. And if you really, really like what you've heard, maybe you could leave a good review for us. Did we, did we forget Jason? Jason who? A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.